Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. I do want to give you a staffing update, uh, fill you in a little bit on some changes. You may remember Mike Jared retired here last month. And uh, which has opened a position, and we have been uh, talking about that position, actually trying try, try to take a different approach to it. Um, we've actually uh, promoted uh, tr- Travis Ratzlaff and Jennifer Roth. If you don't know, there's a picture up on the, on the screen here. Um, we've taken Family Life Ministries, which Mike gave a lot of years to leading, and we've taken adult ministries, and uh, much like we do with many of our, our, our areas of ministry around here, we're trying to give a, a male and female team, and uh, Travis and Jennifer are going to be leading the way with that. So uh, Travis will be like point on things like financial peace or peacemakers. Uh, he'll he'll uh, give be the point man for, for men's ministry. He'll still, uh, he was pastor of community groups. He'll still uh, be, be overseeing that as well. Jennifer was pastor of women's ministry. She'll be leading the way with uh, some counseling, and, and Travis will help with that as well, leading some of our marriage ministries, marriage prep. Um, and so they're, they're going to they're gonna collaborate and work together on adult and family ministries. And I just wanted you to be aware of that change and let you know how we're moving ahead in, in those responsibilities that have been opened uh, as Mike has retired. Uh, if you see them, you might want to congratulate them, tell them way to go. Um, and I love that our staff are growing. I love that we get to trust them with more leadership, and, uh, and these are very two really trustworthy, faithful people that I'm glad are on the team uh, with, with me. So I wanted you to be aware of that. Thanks for celebrating that. And also, thank you. We've been in a series in power. This has been a series that um, maybe has challenged uh, some of your thinking, or maybe it's, uh, it's kind of stirred some, some things in you, and you grew up a certain way, thinking a certain way. And I just want to thank you for engaging and leaning in. Uh, also, especially because the, the, the sermons have been a little bit of a different style. And, um, and, and we'll, we'll sort of change styles through the, through the, uh, the series, but we've been, we've been, it's been necessary to look at particular passages and really dig a little deeper on them to make sure uh, that we understand the heart heart behind what someone is saying uh, in Scripture, and we're going to do that again today in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you got your Bibles, uh, you can make your way to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Uh, there's, there's a lot of soul-searching going on in Dallas County, Texas these days. The reason is, is because uh, there are a lot of men who have gone into prison, c- convicted of crimes, who in recent years are being released from prison. And it's, founded, it's, it's been found out that, that many of these, these folks have been, uh, they've been prosecuted, found guilty, and then years later discovered because of new evidence, and particularly DNA evidence, that they were actually innocent of the crime. Um, Henry Wade, an infamous lawyer, prosecutor in, in, in Dallas County, um, he, personally, every case that he's taken on, he's never lost a case. And it turns out that Wade and his office is actually, uh, a lot of the people that they prosecuted um, um, have actually, after years, it's been determined that they were not guilty. These, these guys, they persuaded juries to, to sentence people to prison, and it turns out that, that these were innocent people. And let's just say a couple things. First thing is that many times prosecutors get, uh, get they, they make decisions and they get it right many, many, many times. But when you get it wrong and you hear like a story of James Woodard who spent 30 years in prison for a crime he never committed, 
Woodard sentenced to prison for 30 years. He's writing letters declaring his innocence. He's filing motions, appeals, and they aren't heard. And, and the media over, over the decades kind of picks up on this, and they, they facilitate a DNA test for Woodard. And he takes the DNA test, and the results are that indeed he is innocent. And here, there's this collective anguish that, that we experience when we hear that someone's life, 30 years of someone's life, has been, has been limited to four walls, limited to a, a prison, uh, in this case, uh, uh, for a crime that, that was not committed. And it turns out in Dallas County, now that this last year, 17 men have been set free who were falsely convicted. That's more, just in that one county, than any state in the union over the, over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, some of these stories, the names, we got Woodard's story. Uh, Eugene Henton was set free, 10 years he spent in, in prison. James Giles did 10 years uh, in prison. James Waller did 11 years. Greg Wallace uh, was in for 19 years. And Billy Smith served nearly 20 years for a crime he did not commit. And friends, what we're understanding is that sometimes the evidence presents itself in a way that it feels like a slam dunk case. But if we're not careful, what we need to do, we, if you're not careful, you need to pull back the layers, you might make a judgment, you might make a decision and limits the life of people in such a significant way. Um, and and, and, and it's, it's this, this, this sentencing or this judgment can have a significant impact. And I want to suggest that as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's just, I'm just going to put this out here. This is a text that is debated quite significantly in the theological realm. There's a lot of debate about this. And I'm, what I'm simply going to do, I'm going to walk through and present why you would read a text like this and why Satan Alliance would choose to express themselves as a church the way we do. I'm just going to, I'm going to show it more, more from that perspective. But you need to know that there's a, there's a lot of smart people who have taken this text and tore it apart and come to different con- conclusions on it. And so what I, what I want to do is kind of express kind of how, how, we, how we live it out here at Salem Alliance. But one of the things we have to understand is we read a text like this. We can't make a snap judgment. We can't, we can't look at a text like this and, and, and treat it as a slam dunk text because what's at, what's at, what's at play here is, is there, in this case, we're, we're talking about women and their role. We've been talking about men and, men and women in, in the church. In this case, 1 Timothy 2, speaking to the role of women in the church, and if we're not careful, we could limit the role of women who, by the way, uh, researchers are telling us with a Gallup or through Peer Research Center that women make up in the American church about 60% of who the church is. And if we're not careful, we, we could limit the, the, the role and, and the, the giftings that God has given to women. And so what I want to do is I want to read this text and I want to answer some very important questions that have to do with co- context. And you ever heard someone saying, you know, hey, you, you can't take a verse out of context? You, know, you, can't, you can't cherry pick a verse to, to get the Bible to say what you want it to say? Well, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we answer two questions. First one, what is the reason Paul wrote this letter? What was his motive in writing the letter? And secondly, what's happening in the city that this church is located? I'm talking about Ephesus. This is... Paul is writing a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, who is a pastor of a, of a young church in Ephesus. Is there anything going on in Ephesus that would shed light into what Paul is actually, his intentions are in writing this particular letter? 
So first thing we're going to ask is, what, what motivated Paul? Second thing we're going to ask is, what's the context in Ephesus that might help us understand what's being said here? So we're just going to dive right in, answer that first question. It's a pretty easy question to answer because 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, states Paul's motive. It says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Paul, in most of his epistles, will, will spend paragraphs just blessing and, and speaking and, and saying hello to people. But in 1 Timothy, he just jumps right in and he addresses this issue of false teaching. There's false teaching happening in Ephesus and Paul is going to speak to it. And it's had, there's been consequences because of this false teaching. Uh, we'll just kind of walk through some of, some of the, the impact of this on this next slide. It says two church leaders in, in chapter one, verse 20, two church leaders have been expelled. Some people need to be rebuked publicly, chapter five. Uh, chapter six, there's malicious talk and friction and false teaching. Again, in, in, towards the end of chapter six, some have walked away from the faith because of this false teaching. Okay, so there's false teaching, that's pretty clear. There's been some negative impact because of that false teaching on the church, that's pretty clear. And, and then as we, as we move forward, uh, we, we, you know, what does this false teaching look like? Uh, here's some examples, it's not all of the descriptions of the false teaching, but here's some of them. There's this teaching mythology and uh, myths and controversies that have to do with genealogies and ancestor lists. There's this forbidding, these false teachers are, are teaching that, that you shouldn't get married. False teachers are telling people not to eat certain foods. And they're teaching this godless mythology and there's also this teaching of old wives' tales. Just, just a little sampling of some of, the, uh, some of the false teaching in this church. Now, interestingly enough, Paul also gives an amazing amount of attention in 1 Timothy to, to women. Uh, he, he, uh, he says women should dress modestly. He says women should learn in quietness. Women are not to have authority over a man. Women will be saved through childbearing. There's qualification for women leaders. There's correction of younger widows. There's women who are going house to house saying things that they, they shouldn't. Now, literally, he's saying is that there's this, they're going this gossiping and there's a slander and, and, and women are leading other, other folks astray here in, uh, in this letter in 1 Timothy. So when we're starting to answer this 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 question of, okay, so why is, what's the motive with Paul? False teaching. And, and in that false teaching, there's you know, forbidding of marriage and the don't eat certain foods and there's this mythology that's worked its way into the church and the teaching. And, um, and then there's this concentration of uh, that there's these verses that have to do with women and basically what you end up having is, is you kind of boil it all down. You have women behaving badly in the church and Paul is going to be addressing that. And, um, and really that, that's, that's why he writes the letter. He covers other topics, of course, but he writes this letter because he's, he's dealing with the false teaching. He's dealing with uh, the, the, this, in many cases, what's happening is we have, we have women who are going house to house and, and there's false teaching that's happening there. Just this, these myths and old wives' tales are being shared. That's the, that's the, the, uh, the motive behind what Paul has to say. Now, a little context. What's happening in, in Ephesus if you were able to go back in time and to just approach Ephesus from the sea and step into that city, you would notice very quickly one of the seven wonders of the world that happens to be in Ephesus. It's the temple of Artemis. 
the goddess Artemis, who's also better known uh, by her Roman name, Diana. There's this massive temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. 127 columns, seven stories high, holding up the roof of this massive temple. And uh, Diana, this Greek, uh, this Greek goddess, uh, she is she's in mythology. She is, is mentioned as the, the the daughter of Zeus. And many of the the Greek, in Greek mythology, a goddess or a god would marry another goddess or a god. And but but Diana doesn't. She actually spurns marriage. She actually in in mythology she teaches people not to marry, and she pursues. A, a human, a, a male companion uh, that, that, will, that will be someone that she will, she will spend her time with. So you go to Ephesus, huge temple, temple dedicated to Diana, uh, or the goddess Artemis, and, uh, and, and she, is, she is the one being worshipped. And by the way, she's known as the protector of women. So if, if you want to get pregnant, you pray to Diana. If you want safety in your pregnancy, you pray to Diana, which will help make some sense of the text we're going to read here in a second. Um, and, and the people in charge of this religious system in Ephesus are women. They're, they're virgins, and they're the ones in leadership in this temple dedicated to, to Diana. And, and men, they, they can't be in charge. Well, they can be, but they'll have to go through this, in, this unfortunate surgical procedure in order, to, uh, in order to, to join leadership of the temple. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about, so we got some pictures up here. No, I don't have pictures. <laughs> I'm just making sure you're awake and you're still with me. I think you get the point, right? Women are in charge. If men want to join the leadership, they have to go through this unfortunate surgery there are thousands of priestesses who are working in this temple. There's cultic prostitution. These women who are, who are serving in the temple of Diana, they dress in such a way that it's very provocative. It's, it's immodest dress. They, 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 they put on all kinds of jewelry and they, they, they sort of do themselves up to attract, uh, to attract the opposite sex in this, in this temple. Um, the, the celebrates, there's a feast that happens every year in Ephesus. It's called the Feast of the Streets. Some, one of the priestesses is chosen. She dresses up like Diana. A man runs through the streets of Ephesus, and the woman who's dressed up as Diana will pursue this man and capture him and dominate him. It's a feast that happens every year in Ephesus. And, um, and what, so what you're seeing actually, what we know of for sure is that in the religious strata of the day, we have a matriarchal culture. Now, we don't know how far that bleeds into to the other uh, strata of society, like education and government and business, but we have, in, in the religious strata of society, women have the power. And actually, what's happening is, now you have this new church, and it's, 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 it's risen up in Ephesus, and it's supposed to be a countercultural expression of what, of what this, this temple is, is all about. See, Paul has he's cast this vision in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's no racism, no Jew or Gentile, no classism, no slave or free, and no sexism, no male or female. And so here we are in a matriarchal system, and women have power, and a, a, a goddess is being worshipped, and it's into that context that Paul is motivated to write a letter to address issues 
and where people are being taught, don't get married, which would be connected to the temple teaching. Uh, he's going to say things uh, about mythology, this godless chatter, and these teaching of controversies. And much of it is because, see, Paul is trying to, he's trying to help the church differentiate itself from what's happening in the temple. He wants them to be set apart, sanctified for Christ. And so he's giving some very specific instructions. And what I want to do is I want to read, with that background in mind, I want to read through uh, verses 8 through 15 in chapter 2. I'll read it through, and we'll pop back up, and we'll sort of break it down verse by verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. All right, what in the world is Paul saying? Last night, someone told me after the service, man, you read that passage, I thought you were gonna get beat up after church. All right, because it, there's some pretty strong statements here. But I hope the light bulb has come on already for some of you as I kind of lay the motive for Paul's writing and as I describe the historical context of what's happening in Ephesus. So let's just jump in, verse eight. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Why does he choose those two words? Why does he say, I want men to lift up holy hands and why doesn't he say it free from sexual immorality or free from stealing? He, he, he says, I want men to lift up holy hands free from anger and controversy. The reason he says that is because men are angry. They're being dominated in this particular culture, and now there's this, 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 there's this new church, and, and Paul's cast a vision of neither male or female, and some men are angry about, at least about some about what's going on here in this church in Ephesus. And there's controversy. There's conflict that's taking place because of the false teaching. That's apparent in the church as well. So that, that's why Paul talks to men, and then he talks to women. And hopefully this makes uh, some sense, as we've already ex ex explained it. I want women to, to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Let's just hit the pause button there, because ladies, if you're wearing, if you got gold and pearls, it's okay. What he's, here's what Paul's getting at. The women in the temple dressed in such a provocative way because there was temple prostitution. The Roman senator, Seneca, wrote about Ephesus and said that there was no difference between a clothed woman in Ephesus and a naked woman. Meaning that the, the clothing was so, was, was, it was so immodest that, I mean, it was just, it was, it was startling even to, to some in Rome. And so what you have is potentially some of these women who came from the temple may be converted and coming to church and they're dressed the same way and Paul's saying, it's not okay. It's not okay. He's talking about modesty. He's also talking about economic modesty. And then Paul goes on to say, women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive, not by the exterior, 
but by the good things they do. It's a call to live a righteous life. So already we, we see kind of Paul's heart and what he's, why he's writing what he's writing. But then things get a little more intense. Verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. If you want to understand what Paul's saying there, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Because in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul writes, Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I've circled the word peaceful in my Bible and circled the word quietly in verse 11 as well as in verse 12 because that's the same word. This women should learn, by the way, that's a radical statement, women should learn because in that day education for women wasn't a guarantee. Women should learn, but they should learn peacefully. They should learn quietly, with tranquility. And what, what, he's, what he's saying is, be a good student, listen to the teacher, stop, stop, stop this, this women behaving badly thing, and, and not only be quiet and peaceful, but be submissive. Submissive to who? Submissive to what? And most scholars, actually on both sides of this argument, will tell you what, what Paul's saying is, Listen, be a student who receives this, this teaching peacefully and come under the teaching. Much like we say we hold the Bible up above our heads, we come under the word of God. We submit to the authority of the word of God. What Paul is saying here is, ladies, calm down. Be peaceful. Be tranquil. And submit to yourself to what you are being taught. But verse 12, boy, that's the biggie. Um, and verse 12 says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. And I just want to, I want to, here's what I want, I want us to understand. There are very good people on both sides of this debate who have tore this verse apart, who have, have come to different opinions on this. What I want to do is just sort of tear it apart and help you understand why we do the things the way we do here at St. Elm Alliance and why we believe the things we do about the roles of men and women in the church. Because this verse, if, if you just read it at face value, you could, you could jump to a conclusion and you could, you could, you could significantly limit the, the gifting and the role of women in the church if, if, if you don't dig in a little bit here and at least try and understand what Paul is saying. So let me, let me give a stab at this, and we'll, we'll get this all solved in 25 minutes or less. <laughs> That's a joke, because it's been centuries that this, this has been hashed over. Okay, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let's talk about that word authority, then we'll talk about that word teach, okay? Um, there are these, uh, these lexicographers. Lexicographers are people who write dictionaries. Uh, they are people who edit dictionaries. They, they compile dictionaries. And um, there are biblical lexicographers, meaning what they do is they actually take, like the New Testament, and they take the Greek language, and they will, they will, take, they will create a dictionary uh, for all the words in Greek that can mean a certain thing. Okay? And so what we have here, uh, this, this theologian, L.L. Belleville, um, she writes this, she says, within the semantic domain, meaning in, in the word selection here, the semantic domain of exercise authority, that's what we're talking about here. In the semantic domain of exercise authority, biblical lexicographers J.P. Liu and Eugene Nida have 12 entries of rule and 47 entries for the word govern. Fun fact for the day. Quote that all day long if you want, okay? And you may be going, what? What's that got to do with anything? Here's, here's why it's important to note. Paul has 59 options available to him 
to be able to express the idea of ruling or governing or exercising authority, as in positional authority, okay? He's got a lot of words to, to express this, and he's used some of those words in other places in Scripture. So it's not that he's unfamiliar with them. He is. But when he gets to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he uses none of the 59 words. He uses a word, it's a very nuanced word. Um, I'll put it up here on, on the whiteboard, here in the classroom. Um, and it's a word that parts of it you may uh, recognize. And the way, uh, what, what, authentian, authentian. This is a word that's used one time in the Bible. And the reason why that's important to know is because oftentimes we're trying to understand what was the motive, what's, what's Paul trying to say? We'll look at other scripture that this word was used to try and help understand what's Paul really getting at here. Well, there's no other place in scripture this word is used. He's bypassed these 59 options and he's chosen this one word and it's a very nuanced word. And so when, that, when you don't have the option of looking at a place in scripture, you go to Greek literature to see, okay, well, out there, how was that word used? And one of, the, one of the first times we see this word appears around 200 B.C., and the word literally, literally meant to murder. Authentian meant to, to, in the verb form, meant to take someone's life. And in the Greek tragedies, this word not only meant to murder, it actually meant to murder oneself or to commit suicide. So it's physical violence. It's to take your life. But just like in English... Now, we're talking 200 B.C., okay? But just like in English, over time, words take on new meaning, okay? So, for example, some of you know a song you sang in elementary school about Johnny come marching home again, right? And at the end of it, some of you are shaking your head, no, you have no idea what that song is. Well, here, here's how it ends. And we'll all be gay when Johnny comes marching home. Because 50 years ago, that meant happy. But now... We're talking about homosexuality when we use the word gay, right? So imagine the English language disappearing and we we'll go 2,000 years into the future and hopefully Jesus comes back before, before that, but 2,000 years in the future and people are trying to figure out what does this English word mean? What are they talking about? Because it used to mean happy and now it means homosexuality. What, was, what are they really trying to say? Well, the same thing happens with this word authentian. It begins out by meaning murder or taking your own life, but by the first century, it has new meaning, and it actually means to bully or to dominate, to, to intimidate. Now remember, Ephesus, women are in power. If you want to be in leadership in the temple, there's a surgical procedure involved. Diana is worshipped, and she is dominating a man. There's a feast that celebrates this every year, and it's influenced the culture. And Paul is writing about false teaching that includes mythology and godless stories and, and, and slander and gossip and, and all of that. And, and, and this word, you know, I do not allow women to teach or to have authority. Authentian in Paul's day, as scholars would tell us, it's, it's about domination. It's about domineering. It's about bullying. In fact, in some of the earliest translations of the Bible, um, uh, the, the Latin version, 4th century A.D., uh, writes, I, I permit not a woman to teach or dominate a man. There it is. We see it. Okay? 
the Latin Vulgate, 5th century AD, 4th, 5th century AD, I permit not a woman to teach, neither to domineer over a man. The REB version, 1989, I do not permit a woman to teach or to dictate to the men. Uh, CEV, CEV version, 1991, they should not be allowed to teach or to tell men what to do. I th- you you kind of get the feel what some, of those, what some of those versions are saying. When we see the word, I, I don't let a, 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 a woman have authority over the man, we often go to positional. And I'm just saying that there's an argument out there that says, actually, it's not about positional authority. It's about domination. It's about bullying. And it, it actually fits pretty well with the backdrop of what's happening in Ephesus. But... What do you do about this phrase, I don't let a woman teach? Well, I mean, Steve, how are you going to talk your way out of that one? Um, well, uh, that's a good question. Because I, actually, the, 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 again, this verse is one that, I mean, you're, you're trying to dig in. You're trying to discover someone's motive and their meaning behind this. And friends, if we're not careful, we could limit people in the church who've been gifted from using their gifts if we aren't careful in making sure we understand what, what really is being communicated in this verse. So you can, you can look at this, this, this teaching and say, okay, teaching is one topic, bullying or authority is another, depending on how, how, however you translate that. Okay? So you can look at those two separate subjects, but some biblical grammarians will tell you that, that actually, oftentimes in Greek, what you do is these aren't two separate things. They're actually two things that, that go together. So for instance, we're not saying, okay, women can never teach, period. We're done with that one. And now women can never have authority over man. Two different commands. No, what, what many biblical scholars would tell you that, that those are thoughts that are put together, meaning it's not okay to teach that women can domineer men. Let me show you this from some theologians. Philip Payne, he writes, he puts his own touch on this. He writes, I do not permit a woman to teach with a view of domineering man. L.L. Belleville, I do not permit a woman to teach a man in a dominating way, but to have a quiet demeanor. Uh, Dr. Kenneth E. Bailey, I do not allow these ignorant women to batter the men. They are to stop shouting and calm down. It's kind of to the point. But let me, let me tell you, this guy here, Bailey, okay? This is a respected scholar on both sides of his earth. Whether you're complementarian or egalitarian, this is a respected scholar. He wrote the book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He wrote that book because he spent his entire life in the Middle East. He lived in Cyprus. He lived in Lebanon. Uh, he, he, uh, he started the Institute, the, the Institute of Far Eastern Studies, he knows Middle Eastern culture. In fact, what I've made available in the lobby is there's a paper written by Bailey. Uh, the heading on says Theology Matters. He just talks about women in the, in the New Testament from a Middle Eastern perspective. And, um, and he's a respected scholar. But re- remember now, he's, he's, he's making one, this is one side of the argument here, okay? Because this is a text that is hotly debated. But what Bailey would say is that, no, no. Paul's not writing, and others say, Paul's not writing to say women can never teach and women are never to have any kind, of, any kind of position in the church. What he's saying is that in Ephesus, women are in power and they're behaving badly and all this teaching of mythology and godless chatter has found its way into the, into the church and some teaching by, that, that's brought by this mythology is seeped into the church and Paul is writing to correct it not to limit women from engaging in the mission of, of Christ. And, and so, 
as Paul continues, he gets into the next verse here in verse 13 and says, for God made Adam first. And if you were here uh, several weeks ago, I, I, ex- I unpacked this, these couple of, of verses here. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to unpack it again, but um, if you want to just hear that, go, go back a couple weeks on podcast or live stream, you can, you can hear that. It says, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing. Now remember, Diana is the protector of women. And if you want to get pregnant, you pray to Diana. And if you want safety in your pregnancy, you pray to Diana. So Paul is going to touch on this issue of childbearing because there's false teaching in the church. And what Paul is trying to do is redirect attention to a God who made it possible for women to be pregnant, who made it possible for safety in childbirth. So this isn't about women, you can be saved, you can experience salvation if you have a baby, because what would that say to single women? What would that say to, to couples who are trying to have a child but can't? What he's saying simply is, is that women, you'll be saved, you, you'll be protected in childbearing, assuming you continue to live in faith, holiness, and modesty, and there's that word again that's connected to what's happening in the temple. All right, what in the world has that got to do with anything about us? All right, I mean, what, I mean awesome, okay, we're trying to explain it here, but let, let's go from AD 60, let's go to Salem 2018. How do you, what's this got to do with us and how we live out uh, our, our lives here in the church here, especially at Salem Alliance? Three things I'd want, I'd want to say to us, and then, and then we'll be done. First thing I say is this. Some of you, as we've been going through this series, you've been looking at your Bibles and you've been reading something and kind of just taking at what it says here, and then I'm unpacking words and I'm saying, actually, it means this, and it's led to frustration and exasperation on your part. And some of you maybe even gone and say, Why do I read the Bible anyways? I can't understand it. I mean, it's just like, what's the point? Am I gonna understand anything? Well, can I say this to you, friends? That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we do small groups, so that in community, we can gather and we can understand it together. We can dig deep. So if you're frustrated and you're exasperated by, okay, how can I know what this really says and what it really means? Take that frustration, take that exasperation, and go out to the group life desk and sign up for a Bible study, okay? Because you'll, you'll, you'll be able to understand a little bit more clearly. Now, they'll start up uh, in, in end of September, and we're going to study first and second and third John in the fall, and you'll be able to dig in deep there. So that's, that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say, and I want to speak to men. Guys, this passage, as it's been hotly debated, in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, the role of women in church has been significantly limited. Many women who have gifts of leadership, gifts of strategy, teaching gifts, pastoral gifts, have been sidelined in the mission and have been, been, been in, some, in some instances, given this, this, this idea that, well, you, you can serve in the nursery and you can serve kids, and you can serve grade school students, and that's okay. Um, And please do not hear me say that those ministry areas are not important, because they are, and that's a little bit of the irony of the whole situation. But in many ways, there are women who feel perfectly just satisfied and feel gifted to work in those areas, but there's other women who have leadership gifts, and they're limited in expressing those gifts. And the Spirit of God 
And his sovereign wisdom has released those gifts. And unfortunately, some women have been told that, no, the Spirit of God wouldn't give that gift. There have been women who have been restricted from even serving communion. There have been women who are singing a special number. And some, I'm talking Big C Church and some expressions, and this is, this is not broad, this isn't in every church, but there's, this has been the experience. Some women have been restricted from even introducing a song because of a text like this. Um, there have been women who have not been, able, not been allowed to teach. I, I have a friend who's, who, who's, uh, his wife is a missionary and, and they serve in an Islamic field and um, she's significantly involved in, the, in theological influence in the country she lives in. But when she comes back to the U.S., do you know what some pastors say to her? Not all pastors. Some pastors say to her, you can share, but don't open your Bible. And I'm not talking about 10, 20 years. I'm talking about last year. Okay? Now, those are some of the, the far sort of experiences that that is not indicative of every experience. I'm just saying, in some cases, this is the outworking. And if we're not careful, guys, here's what I'm calling us to. As much as your conviction allows you, all right? Because I understand that we can be at different places in this. Uh, and that's the beauty of unity, that we could actually think differently and still love each other. That's possible, okay? Unity is not everyone thinking the same. That's uniformity, big difference. But as much as your conviction allows, can I ask you to free women to use gifts that God has given them? That's what I would just, I would just say to the guys. Now, <laughs> women, I need to talk to you, Okay? Because we're, we're in a situation in our culture, we, we have been a patriarchal culture, and there is a shift happening. There's a pendulum swing. And the pendulum swing, I don't know if it's going to happen in 10 years or 50 years, but it seems like we're swinging from a patristic society or culture, and we're moving over to matristic or matriarchal society in some respects. Now, let me, let me just, women, you need to understand this, because being free to be who God has called you to be cannot come at the expense of men and them being pushed down and oppressed and hurt and pain because that will do no one any good. That wasn't really good grammar, but that, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Pain and hurt are not the solution. Jennifer talked several weeks ago about that there's this feminist movement to ban Father's Day. What a miss that would be to honor dads for the role that they play in their families. That would be a miss, but that's indicative of this, this swing. And you need to know, so, you know some people, I've, I've heard some people say, man, wish we'd just get more men to work in children's ministry. Ladies, you need to know something. Children's ministry is very scary for men. <laughs> Not because there's children. Let me explain. You see, I was with some, some people, and there was this guy, and he was, the kids were all over, and they were loving him, and they were having a great time, and um, someone in the group said, man, that guy's going to be such a great dad, and someone in the room said, yeah, he's either going to be a great dad or he's going to be a pedophile. You need to understand something. See, guys, because of news and because of incredible, horrific cases of abuse, and those are real, men are... They're a little afraid to love on kids because all it takes is one accusation. 
So women, can, can, I, can I call you to this? We're in a pendulum swing. Could you fight for the honor of men? Could you fight for the honor of men as they live out who they are? And, and could, we, could we simply see that, you know, you know, they, you know God's given gifts, and we can, we can honor women, and we can honor men, and we can come to the understanding that we've both been made in the image of God and both been called to reflect who he is. And as much as our convictions allow, again, let me just state this because I know that this topic, there are very smart people who, who would land in different places. And I'm, I'm, I'm presenting one side of it, granted, because that's how we live out, live out life here at Sam Alliance. But as much as possible, let's, let's release one another as our conviction allows to reflect who Jesus is to our city and to our world. Let's pray to that end. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of the church. This was your idea. And Lord, everyone's trying to just do what's right. We're trying to understand your heart as it's revealed through scripture. Forgive us when we, when we, we miss it. We, we want to be obedient. We want to reflect who you are. You are the great God of heaven, the high king of heaven. You, you had an incredible vision of creating a world, of creating male and female. And this incredible reflection of who you are to a world. You called us to steward what you've created. May we do that well, and thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you for giving us the privilege to be called sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.